The next case today is number 22-1056, John Doe versus Massachusetts Institute of Technology. At this time, Mr. Byler, please uh, step up to the microphone and introduce, introduce yourself on the record to begin. Mr. Byler is trapped. Uh. <laughs> Good morning, Your Honors. Uh, may it please the court. Good morning. My name is Philip Byler, representing um, the plaintiff appellant, university respondent John Doe. I would like to reserve two minutes for the button. You may. I'm here to seek reversal of the district court's denial of pseudonym status to John Doe and to the university uh, complainant, Jane Rowe, who were parties in a sexual misconduct proceeding at MIT. The reversal should occur because as reflected in the case law in the last 10 years, let me ask you, you, you say you're also uh, re representing Jane? Uh, Not representing, I'm saying that the pseudonym status was sought for both John Doe and to Jane Rowe, both. But she's and that's not, the standard treatment, is standard practice that we do in this field. Okay, but your client is seeking for both the pseudonym. Oh, yes. But Jane Rowe is not seeking or intervening or has asked well, MIT well, to... Well, she has, I mean, but we, we seek this because just in terms of having effective pseudonym treatment, you need to have both. And in fairness, quite frankly, universities usually go along with, if not support, the pseudonym status motion because they want Jane Rowe protected by pseudonym status as well. And okay, so but when we I, make a motion from the outset, we include both. Okay, but uh, you, uh, would you have standing to, to seek on behalf of Jane Rowe? I don't think so. It's never been questioned by any district court. Um, since the briefing in this case, I did two pseudonym motions, uh, Rochester Institute of Technology and Hamilton College, both went along with, did not oppose pseudonym treatment, in which I had sought both for the John Doe and the Jane Rowe. It's just never been questioned because to have an effective pseudonym treatment, you really need both the uh, university complainant and the university respondent covered. And in the Dartmouth case, the judge noted that the complainant would be, university complainant, would be covered by pseudonym status and so that she would be protected as well. So I understand technically the standing issue. In terms of practice, it's always been sought that both the respondent and the complainant be covered by any pseudonym status. So in a sense, it's it, it, it's not standing issue. It's whether if your client gets it, it should be fair unless the other party says, I want to be identified. That, that's yeah. just common. Okay. Let me also ask you, uh, if you're familiar, uh, on July 7th, a panel of this court in uh, case John Doe's versus uh, the Governor of Maine. Uh, the opinion was authored by Judge Lynch, and it talks about uh, pseudonymity, and the court, uh, the panel, Judge Lynch wrote, uh, there's a strong presumption against pseudonymity. Uh, and she's citing most, you know, all the other courts that, that, that say that. Uh, can you, if you're familiar with that case, can you distinguish it? Uh, 
Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, that was just recent. But I have to say that uh, all these cases, I mean, look, this is the standard practice in the field. You have seven court of appeals decisions assuming, uh, assuming status. And I think Dovey Purdue, Judge Barrett, well knew assuming status. But you have a whole area where assuming status has been recognized using a multi factor test. Um, well, when you say, excuse, ex excuse me, counsel. Yes, I'm sorry. I, 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 you say using a multi-factor test. That's incorrect. All right. To be precise, the, the court, other courts of appeals have used at least four different multi-factor tests. Isn't that correct? Oh, well, I didn't mean to indicate that. Well, when you say using a test, you're, you're treating it as as if, well, well, it's all cut and dried, there's a test. No, there is a different test yeah. in the Second Circuit. And a different so test in the Fourth Circuit, and a different test in the, yes. in the Ninth Circuit. I, I mean, a, you know, every, every, not every circuit, but, but there are a host of different tests. Your, your point, I take it, is that, is that in many situations, and Perhaps, although I haven't seen a statistical analysis, perhaps in a majority of these Title IX situations, uh, courts have, have been liberal in granting pseudonymity. Is that, uh, is that point your point? Is whether it, it, when you, I focused on three cases, Dovey Purdue, Dovey uh, um, Colgate, and Dovey yeah. Dartman. And two of them, Dovey Purdue and Dovey Colgate, used the Second Circuit Sealed Plaintiff Test. Dovey Dartmouth used the Third Circuit uh, Dovey Megalis Test. Mm. All three pseudonyms status was upheld, and actually, with the application of whether it was one circuit or another circuit, you had similar factors being recognized as to justify the uh, pseudonymity status. There was you're revealing personal intimate information. There's reputational injury uh, to the plaintiff while he's seeking to clear his name. Um, this uh, undermines the purpose of the case, quite frankly. There is a chilling effect, a deterrence of meritorious cases. But what, what, what you've just said is, is true of many types of litigation apart from Title IX litigation. Uh, where, you, where by filing suit, you. Every time you file a personal injury case, you reveal personal information. Well, wait a minute. One of the points I make in my briefs, and I think I do very clearly, is that these university sexual misconduct cases are different because right. it's a confidential process. And therefore, okay. what you're doing with pseudonym status is to preserve the status quo of anonymity. That's not true in other cases. There's not any risk. Excuse, of reputational harm Excuse me, counsel. Your client's not suing under Title IX. What difference does that make in this case? I, I'm sorry. Your here. client is not suing under Title IX. Does that make a difference? Your what client hasn't acted within the Title IX time limits. Therefore, his suit is not a suit brought pursuant to Title IX. Does that make well, a difference? That does not make a difference 
the subject matters, and I'm sorry, I'm, I, I think I have the worst hearing, and I lost my, one of my hearing aids when I took off my mask. I apologize. Uh, it does not matter because, as you see from the cases I cite in the briefs, there's both Title IX and breach of contract. The point is the underlying uh, claim still deals with a challenge to the um, sexual misconduct proceeding at the university. Usually it's done under Title IX, but it's also sometimes done both under Title IX and breach of contract, sometimes just breach of contract. In this case, that would be that. But it's the same basic problem of challenging the university process. And so whether it's Title IX or breach of contract, it's, you know, it does not matter. All right. Let's, 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 let's try, try, another, try another question. The standard of review here, do you agree that the standard of review is abuse of discretion? Uh, no, I, I think it should be de novo legal, but well, I, well, when well, I well, say well, it well, matters, well, it doesn't well, matter. Excuse me. I'm, Counsel, I don't really much appreciate it when you talk over me. I apologize. Right? Well, you should. All right? I, I, you say you think it should be de novo. Can you cite me a case where de novo review has been applied rather than abuse of discretion review to a request for pseudonymity? What I cite Can you cite me a case? Yes or no? No. However... Can you... Can, I can probably cite you 50 cases where abuse of discretion review has been applied. So, what so on what basis... Can, are you arguing that we should apply a different standard of review? I argue it should be de novo, but I say it doesn't matter because under abuse of discretion, this district judge abused discretion. And I cite cases where, in my reply brief, where there's a long list of cases under the abuse of discretion standard where pseudonymity was recognized, where there was a reversal of the denial of pseudonymity. And so whether you do it under one or the other, the reason why I do it, say, so initially... Wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait, wait, you, let me get the question out before you, you just plunge ahead. All right? If it's abuse of discretion review, are you arguing that the district court abused its discretion merely because you don't like the result? Or is there some specific finding or statement or approach that the district court made or took that you claim was in abuse of its discretion? Abuse of discretion because of how he approached the whole question. And, and elaborate on that. Yeah, how did he approach the question? By requiring that, that, that your client show severe harm? I am saying that the district judge here, in not citing any case after 2011, not using well, any not kind of wait, 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 wait a second. What? It's not an abuse of discretion for a district court not to cite cases. Abuse of discretion concerns the ruling, not the authorities the district court cites. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help you and find out what your argument is. A district court can abuse its discretion 
because it applies the wrong standard, because it requires you to show severe harm, and severe harm is, is too high a burden, because, because it somehow overvalues the, the right to, to access in the courts and the, and the right of, of the public to know via transparency in the courts, or because he draws that right from some improper source. But I'm, I'm struggling because I didn't get that from your brief with how you claim the district court abused its discretion. By not applying the recognized factors in the case law such that you have a standard practice. I, I list, list those factors, please, the ones that you say the district court should have applied but didn't. The district court didn't weigh any factors. The district court basically said, I'm not going to apply what other courts have done. But well, what, what factors did you want the district court to weigh that you say was, was not weighed properly? It didn't, he, didn't weigh, he didn't weigh factors that are recognized. All he did was give the back of the hand to the notion of reputational harm to John Doe. But what specifically did you want the court to well, do? There's a whole list of factors that the courts recognize. That's why I went through those three cases to show you the factors that are considered by the courts. Um, there's no prejudice to the, to the university defendant. There's a limited value of identifying the specific uh, complainant uh, at the university, specific respondent at the university. Uh, plaintiff's name has been kept confidential. The reputational injury. This is why you have the amicus briefs from the face and say organizations and educational law. Because alarming to them and me is the notion that there's not somehow reputational damage to the plaintiff if his name is, uh, his identity is revealed. There is tremendous reputational injury. Okay, uh, going to that, that reputational damage. The, the recent Doe case uh, opinion by, by Judge Lynch, again, J July 7th, uh, it, it makes a point uh, that there were no individualized declarations from each plaintiff in that case. There's no declarations from your client here. It's a declaration sort of by, by you on, on his behalf. And, and, and under the current law, that doesn't amount to a declaration by him. So. Uh, I just wanted to point out, I don't really have anything to add to that, because it's, you, there's no declarations from your, your No, I, I understand. I was handed a case uh, for appeal. Um, the fact of the matter is that when this briefing was done uh, at the district court level, it just had been standard practice, and so the practice had been put in attorney declaration revealing the factors of Dovey Magnus. And one was reputational injury. And why you see the amicus brief you have from face and save and educational law is this is a just a matter of acknowledged and known fact that there is this reputational injury from revealing the actual identity. It's just not been questioned. I, I think we're all flabbergasted by what the district judge wrote here. And not to cite any uh, case after 2011, and he didn't, not to consider 
the other courts of appeal in terms of whatever multi-factor test you want to use, because there's different tests, but it, in terms of this specific area of law, the Title IX breach of contract for university sexual misconduct cases, um, you come back to similar points in terms of you know, what justifies student treatment. I repeat, this preserves the status quo of anonymity, unlike all the other kind of cases. Counselor, take a minute to wrap up because your time is up. Uh, I, I've been trying to answer questions, and uh, the three points I wanted to make sure that I got across was and I, the, the, the three cases in my brief, and Dovey Colby, Dovey Purdue, Dovey uh, Dartmouth, in terms of what caused those courts to grant unanimity to what I just mentioned, the university cases being different because you're preserving the status quo of anonymity, not true in any other area. And third, you get a predictability and reliability from using, it doesn't matter which court you, uh, circuit you use, you get a reliability and uh, predictability from using those factors because you rationally relate pseudonym treatment to whether those factors are present or not. The notion that there's just a you know presumption against pseudonymity doesn't resolve it because you always have the question of pseudonymity. Roe v. Wade has been in the news. That was the case where pseudonymity was recognized. So it is always must be a question that's recognized, uh, addressed, and just saying. So do you want there to be? Uh, do, do you want this to be applicable in every sexual assault case? I don't. I'm, do you want this to be applicable in every sexual assault case brought by a oh student? Oh no, not well. You do the analysis. There may be some specific cases where. Uh, and, and I cite to in my brief where there was a, a loss of anonymity for different reasons. One, the father was posting on Facebook. Another, uh, the university didn't control it, but the plaintiff's uh, name was all over the place. You have to do it case by case. Um, but it just so happens that there is a predictability uh, and a certainty from applying factors from whatever test you want, because in this situation where you're preserving the status quo and enabling a plaintiff to um, uh, address what happened in the uh, university sexual misconduct proceeding and <clears throat> vindicate his reputation, he doesn't, while he's doing that, <clears throat> undergo the reputational harm that everybody knows exists and I accept right. your attention to the latest briefs. All right, thank you, Counselor. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. At this time, would Attorney Roberts please introduce himself on the record to begin? Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court, Scott Roberts for MIT. I want to start where Judge Gelfie began, which is <clears throat> Judge Lynch's decision earlier this month in Doe versus Mills. That decision made clear that at that time, the First Circuit joined seven other circuits in recognizing the strong presumption in favor of public and non-anonymous litigation. 
Um, and it's important to discuss that decision because it so closely aligns with the district court's decision below. Well, it doesn't align with it at all because that was on an emergency motion to stay and the decisional standards were different. The but presumption exists, sure. No one's, no one's disputing that. Just but, the, like but, the, but the case, the, the, the case made a point of not passing upon, upon the merits of the pseudonymity claim because of the posture, the no, unusual posture in which it was, in which it reached the Court of Appeals. If I can address, I think you have two points there. When I said that it aligned with the decision, uh, I mean that the, the judge, or the, the court in Mills, discussed the importance of non-anonymous litigation, citing to the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, specifically Rule 10, yeah. and also with respect to the common law. At the we, we district court, the trial court below, Judge Stearns did exactly the same thing. Well, we, we understand that, but the, but the fact of the matter is that there is a place for, uh, for pseudonymous litigation. Uh, Many other courts, including several of our sister circuits, have recognized it. You're not suggesting that it's a practice that should be barred from, from our courts. Not at all. Okay. I, and I, and, and what, what my question, I have a couple of questions for you, but one of them is that if there is a place in uh, uh, civil litigation for pseudonymous plaintiffs and defendants, why isn't the paradigmatic example the Title IX environment where the United States Department of Education and Congress have granted that type of anonymity to the party? Uh, in all of the underlying proceedings, all of the proceedings before the, the university, why, why should that confidentiality be destroyed because one party to that proceeding believes that his rights have not been honored or that he has been the victim of, of a wrongful decision? Why should he be forced to vindicate that point on pain of sacrificing the anonymity that uh, Congress and the Department of Education have granted him in all the earlier stages of the uh, proceeding. I want to address first, Judge Sully, what happens at the college level. Because what happens at the college level, typically the institution will treat matters as confidential. The See, university has, has no choice, really, under the, under the Department of Education regulations. You, you, make that statement as if the university is, is giving a benefit to the respondent who's charged with misconduct. It has Your no Honor, choice. I, I do disagree with that. Yeah? There is nothing in the Department of uh, Education regulations that would require anonymity or confidentiality. And indeed, the students are free to discuss what has occurred. Any witness who has appeared is free to discuss what has occurred. The students are free. I'm talking about the university's role. In, in there, Your Honor, with respect to, and I know there's some reference in the amicus briefs to the rights under the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, yeah. those fall by the wayside the moment a student sues its institution. 
And that's very clear under the, the firm the regulations. The moment the student what? They fall by the wayside yeah. as soon as the student sues the institution. Under 34 CFR 99.31, if a student initiates legal action against an educational institution, the educational agency or institution may disclose to the court the student's educational records that are relevant for the educational institution to defend itself. And, and you read the provision may disclose to the court that they may make a public disclosure despite the other provisions of FERPA? That is correct, Your Honor. That is exactly what FERPA does. I, I, I would be interested, you can send us a 28-J letter and be interested in what case law you have to validate that interpretation. Certainly they may disclose that to the court, but I'm used to seeing that in a sealed filing. If, if, if that is what Your Honor would like on that, I'm more than happy to provide that. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I do want to go back to the second part of this, which is what happens when we come to court? Mm -hmm. Well, does the, does, does the does uh, so-called victim know that you're not objecting to the disclosure of her name? Your Honor, as Judge Gelby noted at the beginning, I'm, I came here today and am appearing in response to what was an ex parte motion. I've not had any communication with the underlying complaint about what her wishes are in this, in this matter, and I don't presume to know what they are. I do know that in this case, the nature of the allegations that have been brought are purely procedural. They are contending that the college did not comply with its contract, that the college did not do what it was supposed to do. Yeah, but the details of the sexual assault are going to necessarily come out. And if you're, if you're saying that uh, you haven't consulted and it, it's, it's irrelevant to your decision, then that's, that's fine, but it just seems to me that she would want to know that this is going to be public. And in situations like that, Your Honor, complaints have and do come forward and seek their own reasons for anonymity at this point. But she's not a party to the case. She, doesn't, she doesn't know what's going on unless somebody's told her. I agree, Your Honor, but I can't stake out a position that would require us to say that the complainant can't be named or that the complainant shouldn't be in. I'm not here representing her. Yeah, but but that, 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 until counsel raised it, and I asked the question, and he said he was, technically, on, even though he doesn't represent her, uh, but uh, he did bring up a point, because even, let, let's assume we rule in MIT's favor as, as to the plaintiff, there's still that victim. Uh, and again, I'm not saying the plaintiff doesn't deserve or not, ultimately, anonymity, but st that, that victim hasn't been heard by the district court. A again, it, it could be... You know, she could have graduated, be, she can, knows where she's employed, uh, and, and all of a sudden it comes out publicly, uh, and that, that could harm her. Uh, she hasn't had the opportunity uh, his client has. And, and I don't disagree with anything. So I think fo we should perhaps focus just on his client right now. And, and again, that, that might be an issue before Judge Stearns for, for another moment, where she, she, she has the opportunity to... I agree, and I do know of situations where people have sought discovery from complainants in the past, and the complainants have filed their own motions for protective orders with respect to the disclosure of their identity. Well, do you agree that Judge, excuse me, that Judge Stern's motion, I mean, his decision is applicable to her identity also? No, because it was not part of the original motion. It was thrown in as an afterthought at the end to say, oh, and by the way, we'll ask for this for her as well. But how broad was the judge's decision? The judge's decision focused on this plaintiff, plaintiff John Doe. 
And again, I want to get back to what Judge uh, Gelby mentioned with respect to the Mills decision. Because the reason I think it's important about the, the decisions aligning is that what Judge Stearns looked at, what the district court looked at, was whether or not in this case, this plaintiff had demonstrated a fear of severe harm. He recognized correct, correctly that granting pseudonym status is exceptional. And as Judge Lynch just indicated in Mills, it presents a very high bar. And it was not cleared here. There was no declaration from John Doe. And as Judge uh, uh, Lynch noted in the Mills decision, there there was at least a declaration from counsel that tried to check some of the boxes that have been discussed today. Here, the only declaration submitted by counsel said that there was intimate and personal activity involved. And as Judge Sully noted, that can be the case in anything, any kind of case, including a personal injury case, but it doesn't justify moving into um, pseudonym status. It is not fear of severe harm. And then what you're suggesting, and again, I'll, I'll read Judge Lynch's uh, statement in, the, in her opinion. The plaintiffs have provided no current evidence of any potential harm to themselves or evidence on subsidiary issues. Uh, as to whether they employ or they have kept their identities confidential. Uh, we don't have that here, correct? That is correct. We have nothing from John Doe. What if there were a declaration, for example, John Doe says, uh, after, you know, after the events, I got married, my spouse does not know anything about it, uh, I'm, wor I'm employed by this company, and if they find out, I'll, I'll be fired. That would be tangible, perhaps, to keep the anonymity? It, it might have been. And what I want to point out, Judge Gelby, is there was a second opportunity for a bite at the apple at the district court level. Judge Stearns came down very clearly on the sparse and weak record presented to him to say, this is not enough to show severe harm. So what did the other side do? The other side filed a motion for reconsideration. And on motions for reconsideration, bringing new evidence or facts to the court that were, they were not previously aware of before could have occurred at that stage. It didn't. As was the case in Mills, they stood on the declarations that were before the court. And those declarations, that declaration, as I said, which appears, forgive me for being perturbed, but very cookie-cutter, ones that have been filed in other cases, just lifted the language, lifted the same arguments, and as I said, the affidavit references one thing alone, intimate activity, which can be involved in any case from sexual abuse to sexual harassment. It said nothing about any of the other factors. So in other words, if, uh, if the plaintiff had used the standards from the other circuits as a template to put together a, a, an abuse of discretion packet for Judge Stearns, then the outcome could have been different. It might have been, Your Honor. And, and here, uh, there's been a suggestion that Judge Stearns somehow erred in not applying, as Judge Sully noted, the many multiple factor tests that are used in different circuits, from Indiana to to uh, to New Hampshire to uh, excuse me, from Indiana to the Third Circuit to the Second Circuit to the Seventh Circuit, but as Judge Lynch said in Mills, we don't have a multi factor test in this circuit, and in that case, she made it quite clear. The court made it quite clear that we had not formulated that test and declined to formulate. Yes, because she had a motion to stay postured. She declined to try to formulate a test because the case wasn't being heard on the merits. Agreed with that. Right. That Should doesn't we... mean that this panel may not see its 
proper place as, as being to try to bring some clarity to this. I, I, I have a question which is a little off point, Mr. Roberts, but I, uh, but I, I have to admit that, that I'm curious about it. What is the prejudice to MIT? Why, why are you fighting this motion so far? Well, Your Honor, I think the prejudice to MIT begins with it's fundamentally unfair for a plaintiff to stand up in court and accuse an institution of wrongdoing. And here, well, but, but, that, but that's, going to, that's going to happen regardless of whether the plaintiff is named or not. And MIT certainly knows who the plaintiff is and has his, his records, etc. I, I, I ask this question not, not, in, a, not in a frivolous or, or mischievous sense, but because in the majority of these Title IX cases that I've seen in what many lawyers think of probably too many years on the bench, uh, there's never a dispute about this. The, the college or university simply goes along with it. And, and I'm curious why MIT is fighting this so hard. Your Honor, I think that in this case, having the accusations made against this institution, and by the way, I would note that while there are not allegations against the complainant by name. He calls out by name three times the chancellor of MIT mm -hmm. in this complaint. Mm -hmm. He accuses the panel, the investigators, mm -hmm. for whom he provides substantial identifying information mm -hmm. of engaging in an investigation that was tainted by radical feminism. That is simply not the case. And so the presumption it's kind of tit for tat sort of thing? Pardon me, Your Honor? It's a tit-for-tat sort of thing? I don't because think he names us and makes accusations we want to name him? Your Honor, I, I, I think to call it a tit-for-tat doesn't... Well, I mean, what, what else am I going to call it? You point to the fact that he names the members of the committee and makes allegations against them. What I would call it is that it is the strong presumption in favor of public oversight. Mm -hmm. Someone has come forward with a claim as Judge Gordon stated in the Bell Atlantic case, it's fundamentally unfair to allow a plaintiff to make serious allegations in court without standing as they must in the public forum. And here, this plaintiff in this case has not shown a fear of severe harm or any fear that that harm is objectively reasonable. And because of that, Judge Stearns issued the correct decision here. You don't get to come into court, as Mr. Byler suggested, and simply say, well, because it's happened in some other cases or where it hasn't been opposed, you should allow it here. Judge Stearns looked at what was presented. He looked at the appropriate legal standard, the high bar, the presumption in favor of non-anonymous litigation, and concluded that here, this plaintiff, in this case, had not cleared the bar. Now, Mr. Doe, as the court indicated, is free to pursue his case, and it will be defended. He has not said, as was the case in Mills, as some of the plaintiffs indicated, that he will walk away from this matter, that he will not litigate it. I expect that he will come forward and litigate it. But this is a court. This is a court where things are... But just, just, just to be clear, you, you want us to 
be pretty specific in limiting our decision to the facts of this case. In other words, MIT is not going to take a decision that in every case is going to object to pseudonymity. No. For the very you don't want to bar. Not at all. And, and, and Your Honor, let's assume there is a case where someone comes forward and says, if my name is disclosed in this case, it will jeopardize my immigration status. And I've had that occur in cases before. It will cause a different problem and a different domino will fall. What doesn't happen and what shouldn't happen is to just give some sort of blanket exception which is effectively what I think is being sought here. That any time someone's a respondent in a case in an underlying institution, they should be entitled to proceed as John Doe or Jane Doe. Your Honors, I tried a case here a year ago, Title IX breach of contract case, where the young man came forward under his own name. We litigated under his own name. He sued the complainant for defamation in his own name. There are ample cases in which people make that decision to come forward in their own name. It is not a blanket rule. This case should not create a blanket rule. Let Thank me ask you. you one last question. The standard here is abuse of discretion. And uh, as we've recognized, and Judge Lynch recognized, there's no uh, formulated test in the First Circuit. So there being no formulated test, would that be in, in MIT's favor if there's no abuse of discretion? Well, I, I, I think so, Your Honor, if I understand the question, what Judge Stearns did was apply a two-part inquiry, fear of severe harm and of the, the, objective, the objective reasonableness of that conclusion. That is the same standard that is used in the Mills case. I think the judge has clearly explained his decision on that record, sparse though it was. So I see no basis here to say that the judge in this case abused his discretion, particularly given the high standard and the presumption against pseudonymous litigation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. At this time, Attorney Byler, please reintroduce yourself on the record to begin. You have a two-minute rebuttal. Yes, Philip Byler, representing Plaintiff uh, Appellant University, uh, Respondent John Doe. I want to make some quick points. One. Your rights don't fall by the wayside when you bring a lawsuit. Dobie Colgate is one of the cases I focused on. Talked about due process being protected by the pseudonym status afforded. I think due process is a constitutional interest. The notion that you bring a lawsuit, all your rights fall aside, no. The pseudonym status is to enable individuals to vindicate rights to vindicate their reputation so they can go on in life. Two, the uh, original application gave the Doe v. Megalus template. It also cited Doe v. Dartmouth. And the district judge ignored and refused to apply Doe v. Megalus and totally ignored Doe v. Dartmouth, which upheld pseudonym treatment. That's precedent in the First Circuit, albeit at the district court level upheld pseudonym status on the uh, uh, factors of the Doe v. Megalus Third Circuit test. On reconsideration, the point about Jane Roe was presented saying, look, we're seeking protection of both John Doe and Jane Roe. 
yes, we don't uh, represent Jane Roe, but we're concerned about protecting pseudonym status. Dovey Dartmouth talked about the interest of protecting the uh, university complaint that happened to be called Sally Smith. And she was also protected, and that was a reason to grant pseudonym status. That's a precedent within the First Circuit, totally ignored by the sister judge, one of many reasons why he abused his discretion. Let, let me ask you, why, why weren't there any sworn statements or affidavits by your client presented to, to Judge Stearns um, with the specificity as to his harm? No court that we knew of uh, required a declaration by the individual. If there were a rule, um, certainly we would be able to supply, and nobody could question about the severe reputation. This guy is a software engineer, albeit without that MIT degree. Yes, he would be hurt, and anybody who thinks that if you're identified with sexual misconduct um, uh, findings, that, that doesn't, that's not going to hurt you. They are totally mistaken. It is a fact of life that we deal with in all of our cases. And quite frankly, uh, without the pseudonym status, many people would not bring the lawsuits. And I can't tell you John Doe will continue with the case if he doesn't have pseudonym status, he's going to think about it. That's wrong. And if you read the allegations of the complaint, you realize he's got a meritorious case. He shouldn't be denied his MIT degree. That's what's at stake here. He was just a few weeks away from graduation. And so for him to be publicly identified, it's just sort of obvious to us that, you know, that harm would exist. If there's a rule out there, or if you would say on remand, supply the affidavit, that can be done very quickly. That can be done very quickly. But you've seen the amicus briefs from FACE and from uh, SAVE and from educational attorneys because there was this alarmed reaction that anyone would question that there was reputational injury from being identified with university proceedings. And you are just preserving the status quo by giving pseudonym treatment. The Thank status you. quo. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes argument in this case.